Well, I suggested some of these names to Tyler and Pamela. I don't know why they went with William when they could have had Jehoshaphat or Manasseh or Abinadad or who knows. But any expecting mothers among us, there is a wide open list of baby names here from Matthew chapter 1. Now, how often do we skip over these things? Great job reading that, Brittany. I, I tasked her with it because it's harder for her to say no to me and there's time to just work through it. Great job. You nailed all those names. Uh, but in, in our Bible reading, how often do we just skip over lists of names like this, right? I mean, you read that and we often look at the Bible as this devotional book which is supposed to encourage and inspire us and to make our lives better, right? That's often how people look at the Bible. And so you come to a list of names like this and we think, what, what good is this to me? Is this useful at all to me? What does this mean? And oftentimes we skip over these lists or we just gloss over them and don't, don't really consider the significance behind it. And as we kick off the study in the book of Matthew today, I don't want to skip over this list. I want to stop and I want to look at this passage because this lineage timestamps Jesus in history. It showcases his humanity and his divinity and it offers for us a new beginning. Regardless of where you're at this morning, regardless of where you've come from, this passage, this list of names shows us something incredible. It shows us this incredible God who we serve and how he interacts with humanity, how he interacts with those that he's created and how he leads us. And so over the next months ahead, we're going to be studying the book of Matthew and over the Advent season in the month of December, we're going to be in chapters one and two, which are all about the birth of Jesus. And today we're stopping at this lineage, we're stopping at this list, this intro to look at what it means for us. But before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about Matthew, the author of this book. So Matthew was one of Jesus' followers, he's one of the disciples, he also is known as Levi. Levi was his Hebrew name and Matthew was his Greek name. And so some of the other gospels will refer to this man as Levi here. This is the Matthew according, the gospel according to Matthew. Matthew is the author of this book. Matthew was a first century tax collector. This means that he was a Jew who took money from his fellow Jews and paid taxes to the Romans. This was a despised trade in their day and age. It's kind of a despised trade in our day and age, right? How many of you love the IRS and paying your taxes and having someone tell you that you owe taxes or FICA pulling money out of your paycheck? This is Matthew. This is his job. He's a, he's a tax collector, and he's working. To make matters worse, he is taking money from his people, the, the Jews, and he's giving it to the Romans. And so Matthew isn't a liked guy. Oftentimes, sinners and tax collectors are lumped together in the New Testament. Jesus refers to sinners and tax collectors. The culture refers to sinners and tax collectors as this despised, despicable group of people. That's who Matthew is. That's his identity. Matthew, the sinner. Matthew, the tax collector. Matthew, the, the guy who betrays his people. Matthew, the guy who's cozying up to the Roman authorities. Matthew, the guy who's skimming money off the top. It was known in the first century world that tax collectors would skim money off the top as they would take taxes. And they were getting rich off of people's behalf. They were contributing to injustice. This is Matthew. This is the guy who writes this book. That is, until this, this was his identity until he met Jesus, until he turned from a tax collector into a Jesus 
follower. And the, gospels, the, the gospel story tells us as we go on in these books that Matthew was indeed a tax collector until Jesus walked to his tax booth. And he said, Matthew, come and follow me. Come and follow me and I will give you a new life. I will give you a new beginning. I will give you a new, a new identity. I will give you a new purpose. And so Matthew got up from his tax booth and he followed Jesus and everything changed. This was a new beginning for Matthew. It was a chance to start over. It was a chance to contribute to something meaningful in the world, not simply becoming rich by stealing other people's money. And so he was commissioned as a follower of Jesus. Jesus commissioned him to make disciples. We talk about this often here at Park Community Church. We exist to be and make disciples. This comes from the end of Matthew's book, Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. It's called the Great Commission. Matthew writes Jesus' words, which are, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus turns, or Matthew turns from a tax collector into a Jesus follower, and he's commissioned by Jesus himself to go and make disciples or followers of Jesus. And then he's empowered by the Holy Spirit to go and do this. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you see the, the disciples, the apostles, Matthew was one of them sitting, waiting for this power from on high, the, the Holy Spirit to come to empower their witness. And so the Holy Spirit comes, and in fact, he empowers them to live with the same power as the scriptures tell us that rose Jesus from the dead. So even here in the beginning of this book, we see in the identity, the person of Matthew, when we begin to understand the author of this book, we begin to understand how Jesus works. He transforms people. He changes identity. He gives new beginnings. Matthew, the despised, greedy, selfish tax collector, turned into this empowered Jesus follower, making disciples, empowered by the Holy Spirit, loving the lost, the weak, the broken, the hurting, returning the money that he stole, contributing to the common good of society. That's what we see here in the very author of this book. Now, this passage, the first 17 verses of this book, aren't about Matthew. You'll notice Matthew's the author here, so I wanted to introduce us to who Matthew was, but Matthew doesn't talk about himself at all, does he? It's because he's captivated by somebody else. He's captured by the one who this passage is about, and it starts in verse 1. That's Matthew. Here's what Matthew wants us to know, though. Matthew doesn't want us to know his story. Matthew doesn't care if we know much about him. He starts out, the book of the genealogy. That's where we start as we look at this new book, as we, as we dig into the book of Matthew over the coming months. The book of the genealogy. Here's what Matthew, the author, the apostle author, wants us to know. That this is a new beginning. For us individually, yes, but also for us as mankind. The Greek word for genealogy is Genesis. Matthew writes, the book of the Genesis. Genesis means beginning. Matthew is saying, this, this, this Jesus breaking into history is a new beginning for all. That's why we call it the New Testament. Or better known as the New Covenant. Matthew is communicating to us as we start off the New Testament here, as this book is placed as the first book in the New Testament, that this is a new era. 
This is a, a new time in the kingdom of God where, where God interacts with his people in a different way now that he has sent his son, Jesus Christ, on their behalf. God isn't different. God is the same on the left side and the right side of the book, but this is a new beginning. This is a new era in the history of mankind. This is what Matthew wants us to know, the book of the genealogy or the book of the beginning. Where are you at this morning? What have you been through in your life? What challenges have you experienced? What, what sin has been committed against you or to you? What offenses have you done? What sins have you committed against others? And, and what shame do you feel from the things that you've done? And what dirtiness do you feel from the things that have been done to you? Here in the beginning of the book of Matthew, we see that there is a new beginning in Jesus Christ, that there is a new era, there is a new covenant from which we find life and hope. Matthew's setting up this book saying this is a, a new time. The Old Testament was about the law. The Old Testament showed us God's law, and God's law was that of grace. It was allowing God's people to come into God's presence. It allowed God's people to interact with God. But now in the New Testament, there's a new era it's the reign of grace because God has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. God has humbled himself, the incarnation. God has come down, the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, who existed eternally. This isn't the beginning of this second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. It says the book of the genealogy or the book of the beginning of Jesus Christ. Well, the scriptures teach us that Jesus was there in the beginning, that Jesus has always existed, that Jesus has always been, that Jesus is eternal. However, this is a new beginning for us, and it's a new beginning where the second person of the Trinity who existed eternally has now come in flesh. That's the next thing to notice here. Matthew refers to him as Jesus Christ. This is the, the genealogy or the beginning of Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a name, it's a term that we know well, that we use often. But what does it really mean? I mean, Jesus was the, the Greek name of the Hebrew name Joshua. Yeshua was the Hebrew name of the Old Testament. There's characters in the Old Testament that go by this name. Yeshua, Joshua in the Old Testament means God saves. God is one who saves. But this name Jesus... It's the Greek name of that. Joshua was a common Old Testament name, and now Jesus is a common New Testament name in this culture. It's a common name. And so Matthew's writing here, the book of genealogy, the beginning of Jesus, the first part of this name is very common. He's showing us that, that God came down in a common matter. The, the Son of God, the eternally existing Son of God, took on a normal common name. It's like, Tim, or Mike. I think Mike's the most common name we have these days, right? God came down in the flesh and he takes on a common name, Jesus. Yes, it's significant in that it means that God saves, but it's also extremely common. Our names have significant meaning behind them, but they're also common names. They're common, common names used in the culture. This is what Matthew is communicating to us about Jesus. That God, the eternally existing second member of the Trinity, Jesus, came down and walked among us. This is where we're introduced to him as a common human being. God in flesh. 
But then the next term, Christ, that's not so common, is it? I mean, we don't refer to people as Christs. Christ isn't a name given in our culture. Christ wasn't a name given in the Greek culture. Christ wasn't a name given in this culture. Christ, in fact, isn't really a name. It's a title. And how how often do we think about Jesus Christ kind of like first name, last name, Andrew Peterson, that's my name, Andrew Peterson. We refer to Jesus Christ kind of thinking and, and assuming it's like Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's his name, first and last name. No, it's not. Jesus is his name. Yeshua is his name. Christ is his title. Christ is who he was. Christ meant the anointed one of God. And so Matthew is showing us here this combining of humanity and divinity. The hypostatic union, as the theological term refers, which is one of my favorite terms because who knows what it means. The hypostatic union, it just sounds mysterious and mystical and hard to understand, which is our God. Amen? Isn't it great that we can't understand all of the details and dynamics of how our God is? I mean, if I could cross all of my theological T's and dot all of my theological I's, what kind of God would I serve? I would be equal to him if I could understand everything about him. But God is above us. He is, he is unlike us. He is mysterious to us. Now, we can study and probe the depths of who God is, but we can never master him. And, and in this name, Jesus Christ, we see the mysterious nature of this God, that, that he's unlike us, yet he's similar to us. Jesus, a common name, a human name, God came down. He received a common name, a human name. He walked among earth like us. He had to learn how to eat from his parents. He had to learn how to speak the language. He had to learn how to do basic daily tasks. Jesus, the man. But then Christ, the anointed. The one who eternally existed before all of time. The one who created all things. The one who was with God the Father as he created the heavens and the earth. In this name, Jesus Christ we see the mysterious marriage of humanity and divinity. In this name, Jesus Christ, we see the divine and immortal Son of God meeting the mundane and mortal dust of earth. The divine and immortal Son of God who has existed forever meets the mortal and mundane dust of earth. God, who is in heaven for all of eternity, is now walking among, among earth. He is now interacting with humans. One of the reasons that Jesus is so beautiful is because he's the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. He's the highest of highs and lowest of lows. He is the perfect son of God. He was worshipped eternally in the heavens for all of time. He created all that is. And then he came and he walked among it. Those that he created spit in his face. Those that he created rebelled against him. Those that he created put him on a cross and crucified him. He knows the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. He's both like us, church, and he's unlike us. He's like us. He's Jesus. The common Jewish man who lived in the first century, who was born in the town of Bethlehem, who moved to Nazareth and grew up as a carpenter. He's just like you and I, church. 
God knows what we go through. This is what the book of Hebrews says when he sympathizes with our weakness because he was tempted in every way that we are. Jesus gets you. Jesus understands you. Jesus knows your emotions. He knows your confusion. He knows your brokenness. He became like us. He is able to sympathize with our weakness because he was tempted in every way as we are, yet this passage in Hebrews chapter 4 goes on to say, without sin. He's also unlike us. He never sinned. He never gave into temptation. He always trusted God the Father. He always relied on the power of his spirit to choose right or what is wrong. This is a man worthy of our worship and praise. This is a, a human being unlike any human being that we've ever interacted with before. He understands what we're going through. He understands the temptations that we have. And yet he knows what it's like to resist temptation to the point of not giving in. Can you imagine that type of resisting? Jesus Christ. Jesus the man. Christ the divine. He is the divine immortal son of God, meaning the mundane mortal dust of earth. And then Matthew goes on to give us an idea of who this is. The book of the genealogies, new beginning of Jesus, the man, Christ the divine, the son of David. Now the son of David terminology here is significant because in the Old Testament it was prophesied that a son of David would be the Messiah, would be the king, the ruler of the Israelite people, that he would establish his throne forever, that a descendant from the line of David would rule the nations forever, not just the people of Israel, but the nations. And so here this genealogy shows us that Jesus comes down through the line of David. He is the son of David. He is the rightful heir to the throne of David. And Jesus qualifies to be the king forever. Jesus qualifies to be the anointed, the Messiah, the promised Messiah that the Old Testament talks about over 300 times. And Jesus fulfills all of these prophecies. He's the son of David, which qualifies him to be the messianic king of the Jews. He is also the son of Abraham. It was promised and prophesied to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that Abraham, that Abraham would be a, a father of many nations and that his descendants would rule the nations and be a blessing to the nations. Out of Abraham, the Hebrew, or the Jewish people, the Israelites are established. God establishes this people group to be a blessing to the nations. And so they went through their life, sometimes blessing the nations, but often not blessing the nations because they were sinners by nature and choice, and they needed a Messiah. They needed a, a new man, a new human being to come and restore and fix what Adam and Eve had broken. One of the things that I love about the Christmas season is many of the songs, if you pay attention, it talks about the first Adam in the second Adam. Romans chapter 5 talks about the first Adam in the second Adam. The first Adam was the one created by God, Adam and Eve, and they, they had all that God had created at their disposal except for the one tree, and God said, don't eat from that tree. They disobeyed, they ate of the forbidden fruit, and then the world is cast into chaos because we took matters into our own hands. And so we are all now sinners by nature and choice. We are affected by the first Adam. Our, our DNA is affected by the first Adam, and our choices are affected by the first Adam. 
But scriptures is teaching us, and, and what Matthew's getting at, what our Christmas songs declare is that there's the second Adam, this new man. In fact, he existed before the first Adam, but now he's come in flesh. God has become man. A new Adam, a second Adam has been sent to redeem mankind, to, be, to bring a new humanity. He's the son of David and he's the son of Abraham. So where Israel failed, where the children of Abraham failed to be a blessing to the nations, Jesus would come and be a blessing to the nations. And he would open this blessing up to Jew and Gentile alike. He would expand this rule and reign to all people, all languages, all tongues, all tongues, all tribes, all nations. Jesus being the son of Abraham shows us that God continues to fulfill his promise and his prophecy. That God continues to care about the nations of the world. The peoples of the world. God doesn't have a favorite nation. God doesn't have a chosen people group any longer. God has a a nation, the nations, plural, of the world that he sent Jesus to reach out to, to engage with, to bless. And then as we move on through this text, we move into the list of the names, which I'm not going to reread. We move to verses 2 through 17, and, and all of these names, this genealogy, summarized well in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14, and from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. So it's capturing these generations here in verses two through 16. What's important to note in these names, and and I thought about going through each name one by one, but I think it would take too long, because these names communicate something incredible to us. Here's what this, this list of names here, here's what it represents. Murderers, adulterers, liars, deceivers, incest, prostitution, outcasts, slaves, refugees, and terribly selfish, self-serving kings. That's Jesus' family tree. Murderers, adulterers, liars, deceivers, incest, prostitution, outcasts, slaves, refugees, and terribly wicked and self-serving kings. Those are the people to whom Jesus, the Son of God, was born into this line, this family heritage, this family lineage. Isn't that amazing, church? That, that Jesus associ- associates with the lowly. That Jesus comes from the lowly. That Jesus understands what it's like to be from a broken family. A divided family. My guess is most of you didn't come from the ideal perfect family. Some of you probably came from great families. Praise the Lord for that. Praise God for that. But in every family, even the one that looks the best on the outside, there's, there's brokenness, there's loneliness, there's dysfunction. Jesus, the man, understands what it's like to be from a broken family. Jesus, the God-man, came as one of these. These are his people, This is who he is associated with. 
but he changes the trajectory of this family tree. He does this for you and I as well. I love what the, the pastor, James Boyce, who was a pastor at 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia for many years, says about this passage. He says, Since Matthew's genealogy contains the names of women and Gentiles, even noted sinners, the book shows that barriers between men and women, Jews and Gentiles, saints and sinners, were falling through the work of Jesus Christ. Our world's all about division, isn't it? Are you this? Are you that? Are you in? Are you out? Are you like me? Are you dislike me? Do you believe this way? Do you think this way? Do you, do you align with, with me this way? And he's saying that this shows us that Jesus is coming to break down barriers between mankind. He goes on to say, Jesus' ancestry also provides a clue on this matter, showing that God chooses his servants from a wide spectrum of those from whom the respectably orthodox would turn away in horror. The respectably orthodox, those who look like they would do well in church, those who look like they should be in church leadership, those who look like they have it all put together, they would shudder as they understood that Jesus came from this broken family of prostitutes, of liars, of deceivers, of the broken, of incest, of slaves, of refugees, of self-serving kings. Those who who have it all put together, the Pharisees who on the outside look good, are appalled at who this Jesus is. Because he comes to associate with the lowly. He comes as one of the low. Now I want to come back to the the big idea here and just make some observations. Again, this text, this lineage here, it timestamps Jesus in history It showcases his humanity and divinity, and it offers us a new beginning. Let's think about this here. It timestamps Jesus in history. Jesus is a historic figure. He is a real man who really lived. Ancient scholars don't dispute this. In in fact, among scholars and archaeologists and people who, among historians, if you claim that Jesus of Nazareth never lived, you would be considered a fool. All historians agree that Jesus of Nazareth was a real man. He really lived. And this lineage helps to timestamp him in history. It, it, it places us, it places him in history. We understand when he lived, who he descended from, who his family tree was. That's good proof of a historical figure, of a historic man who really lived, and all of historians agree that he really lived. And so, church, what have you done about this? If Jesus is a real man who really lived, what have you done about it? Do you, do you believe in him? Have you reckoned with this person, with this God-man? As C.S. Lewis says, and so it's one, one thing, he really lived, and then he claimed to be the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Okay, so all historians agree that he lived. Now, people are divided on who he was, what his nature was. Was he really the Son of God? Was he really the Christ? No one disputes Jesus. They dispute Christ. And so, was he really Christ? Was he really the Messiah? C.S. Lewis, I love what he says about this. He says, you can't deny that Jesus lived and that he claimed to be the Messiah, So if those two things are true, are fact, you have to deal with either he in fact was Lord, he was a liar, or he was a lunatic. You can't dispute the fact that Jesus lived. You can't dispute the fact that he claimed to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And so, church, what 
will you do with that? Maybe you're newer to Christianity and you're, you're seeking this out. You need to ask yourself that question. Who was Jesus? Who is Jesus? Is he the Messiah? Is he the Christ, the Savior of the world? Or was he a simple liar who came to create a following for himself? Or is he just a lunatic? Was he crazy? Second part of this statement, it showcases, this passage showcases his humanity and his divinity. Again, Jesus is both like and unlike us, church. This is an incredible thing because it means that we can relate to him, that he can relate to us. That, that our God understands what we go through and yet he never gave into temptation in the way that we give into temptation. Therefore, he is worthy of our worship and our praise. What other God is like this? That they are high and lifted up, holy above others, perfect, eternally existing, and yet made low on our level, understands what we go through, and in that temptation has never sinned. Jesus is a God-man who is worthy of our worship. So church, do you worship him? Have you worshiped him recently? What does this look like to you? Does, does Jesus captivate your mind, your thoughts? When you feel alone and depressed and broken and beaten up and like no one gets you or no one can relate to you, do you understand that Jesus as a man was abandoned by all his friends? by all his family, was cursed, was abused, was beaten, was broken. Jesus understands you. And yet in that, he is the glorious eternal son of God and so he's worthy, church, of our worship and our praise. And then lastly, he offers us a new beginning. New beginning. Regardless of who you are, where you've come from, what who your parents are, what your parents have done, what your circumstances are. This 42 generations, that's amazing. I mean, Luke, as a tax collector, he was skilled in recording fact. He, he records 42 generations. I can go back to my great-grandfather, Matthew. That's as far back as I can get. Not this Matthew, a different Matthew. He came from Sweden, I think. Sweden, Norway, somewhere. See, I can't even, I can't even go back that far. Matthew, 42 generations, he captures this and he shows us that regardless of who we are, where we've come from, what brokenness we've experienced, Jesus identifies and Jesus redeems. Regardless of how religiously snobby you've been, Jesus can give you a new beginning. Regardless of how bitterly rebellious you've been, Jesus offers you a new beginning, regardless of how utterly helpless you felt. Jesus offers a new beginning. Jesus offers you a new life, a new start, a new, a new name, a new identity, a second birth, as the Gospels go on to tell us, an a identity as a new man, a, a person wrapped up into the second Adam. This is our Jesus. This is our King. This is the one who we celebrate. As we look at Matthew chapter 1, let's keep in mind that this is significant because it stamps Jesus in history. It shows us both his humanity and divinity, which makes him worthy of our worship and praise. And it offers to each one of us 
a new beginning, a fresh start, a, a purpose and a meaning in life. Regardless of who our family is, regardless of who comes after us, Jesus is our hope. Let me pray. God, we thank you for looking on the sinful state of man and not turning your back on us, but sending your son for us. Jesus, we thank you for coming, for leaving glory on high to associate with man below. I pray that each of us would consider Maybe for the first time today, who you really were and what that means for us, or maybe for the thousandth time, who you really are and what that means for us. I pray that each of us would see and savor that you are God and you are good. Lord, I pray that this Christmas season would be filled with true worship. I pray that that would come about by us enjoying time with family, with friends, those who don't have family and friends who enjoy time with, Lord. I pray that they would find that here among our church family. I pray that we would be a welcoming people. I pray that the relationships you've blessed us with would be an encouragement and help us to worship. I pray that the, the food that you give would be a blessing to us and help us to worship. But all in all, I pray that we would worship you, the giver of life. We pray these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.